Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. For the month of September, I'll be covering a conversation between two prison abolition activists and friends. This conversation between activist scholars Sarah Haley and Romarilyn Rolston takes as a point of departure the firefighting labour of people imprisoned in California's women's prisons. The discussion considers the specific contradictions of that forced labour and meanders to cover the carceral state's relationship to disappearance, precarity, interiority, intimacy, possibility, performance and violence. Romarilyn Rolston is Executive Director and former Program Director of Project Rebound. She identifies as a black feminist abolitionist with an incarceration experience. She's an activist scholar who earned a bachelor's degree in gender and feminist studies from Pitzer College and a master's degree in liberal arts from Washington University in St. Louis after 23 years of incarceration. Sarah Haley is Associate Professor of Gender Studies and History at Columbia University with research areas including US gender history, carceral history, black feminist and queer theory, prison abolition and feminist historical methods. She's the author of No Mercy Here, Gender, Punishment and the Making of Jim Crow Modernity, which was selected for the 2020 National Book Foundation's Literature for Justice reading list. Buckle in for the next three weeks as we cover this incredible conversation for the month of September. Fire is a a big topic. It's been a part of my life um, before prison, after prison, uh, while in prison. You know, all of the fire songs from the 70s and 80s. (laughs) Love all of those songs. Rupa's on fire. Mm -hmm. And... um, Yeah, so while inside prison, I worked for a number of years as a fire camp trainer uh, within the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Uh, Since the 1940s, California has used the labor of incarcerated people to fight wildland fires Mm -hmm. across the state to save, of course, property and lives. Mm -hmm. And as a fire camp trainer, you know, I was able to see and support, you know, hundreds of women over the years uh, in their, you know, quest to fight fires mm-hmm. for their own liberation from the carceral system. Mm-hmm. Uh, fire camps are a way for incarcerated people to get outside of the prison, but also to serve their time to make a little bit of money. But at the expense of their own lives. Mm -hmm. But we can talk a little bit about my experience with fire camp. Mm -hmm. Um, We can also talk about, you know, fire as a metaphor, you know, CCWP, the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. We use the symbol of fire um, as our kind of motif for our website and for a lot of our literature. You know, the the fire from within prisons we talk a lot about, and that's kind of the metaphor for our work, because inside prisons and jails across this country, not just in California, you know, are brilliant, amazing, you know, creative individuals that have a fire within their bellies while they're in the belly of the beast, 
that needs to come out. And so CCWP's work was born inside of facilities in California where you know women were facing some uh, horrendous medical um, treatment and our motif, as I said, is now this this beautiful flame because you know flames are just beautiful when you look at fire mm -hmm. and you think about fire and and what it what it consists of. You know, you look at the fire triangle. You need you need fuel, you need oxygen, and you need heat to create fire. Mm -hmm. And the prison is a perfect metaphor for all of those things. But getting back to CCWP, you know, the Fire Inside has been a newsletter that our organization has sent inside of prisons across California, whether they're men's or women's prisons. And it includes, you know, policy and advocacy work, poetry, artwork, you know, our organizing labor across the state, um, the work that we're doing uh, with other organizations across the country, but it's also a way for incarcerated members of CCWP and others, just incarcerated people, to contribute, you know, to a uh, to a journal, to a newsletter that was going to go out across the state and oftentimes across the country to some of our members who have moved outside of the state. Mm -hmm. And it's just a beautiful way to to keep that energy flowing. Mm -hmm. And so, a few years ago during COVID, we also created the fire on the outside which is a support group. You set something on fire on the outside? <laughs> you know, wherever we go, we set something on fire. Yeah. Because that's what we are. Mm -hmm. And uh, we started that during COVID and now we have a support group for our folks coming home to just stay in community. Because I think that's really important uh, for us to do while we're inside. Mm -hmm. And when we come home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I want to get to all of that. And <laughs> um, I think we have so much to talk about. You know, um, I know you to be a very fiery person. And so it's just exciting to hear just from your experience, but also your analysis of precarity, possibility, and how that manifests through FIRE. So it's interesting to hear you talk about your relationship to FIRE in terms of the FIRE camp, right? And the labor that um, is used, marshaled, and exploited inside prison. I mean, my own relationship to FIRE is probably in thinking about it in terms of Black women's longer-term relationship to the prison system and to captivity. Um, reading Angela Davis's reflections on the Black women's role in the community of slaves, which she wrote from inside, as you know, um, in the early 1970s, and thinking about those everyday forms of rebellion that included fire, that included poisoning. So thinking about kind of the way that fire is an everyday weapon. And then in my own research on imprisoned women, in um, convict lease camps and in state farms in the South, you know, they literally set the prison on fire um, and worked in conspiracy to do so and were very strategic about, you know, the section of the prison that they set on fire, which was the wardens. Um, um, 
residents and the women's section of the prison as part of an escape plan. And so, you know, it's interesting to think about the role of fire in both rebellion, you know, as a way to break out. But then as you're saying, you know, fire work and um, labor in fighting wildfires in our current moment as a way to make some money and I assume earn good time. Um, and, uh, and yet, even in that kind of extraction and labor exploitation, um, there's certain precarity in terms of who is eligible, right, to do that work, who is qualified. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that, because I'm really interested in how, you know, you were a trainer for certain reasons and, um, you know, the kind of precarity that is involved in both fighting the fire, but the precarity that is reinforced by being excluded from that work, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point. As within the prison, there's there's all types of labor. And in order to get assigned to a position, a work position, or even education, you have to go through what's called a classification committee. Mm -hmm. And in that classification committee that consists of most likely someone from education department, associate warden, a number of captains, lieutenants, and some other staff, then they look at your file, your educational background, your work history, the things that's that you put in your file when you entered into prison or in all of your records that have come with you from jail. And they try to make an assessment of where you would fit best within the labor force of the prison. If you don't have a minimum of high school diploma or GED, then you're gonna automatically be assigned to education because in the state of California, there's a, a literacy mandate. But if you have a high school diploma, GED, or some college, then they want to look at your skill set. But they also look at your commitment offense and whether or not you are classified as minimum security, medium security, maximum security. And based on that, then they can now rank you in certain positions that are closer to the, the fence line, the, the, the outside of the prison and fire camp is one of those positions where one needs to have a minimum security level, which means folks who are committed under serious felonies are ineligible for fire camp like myself. Mm -hmm. But because we are also part of the prison labor and we're there for long periods of time, we're often used in positions where we can create stability, long-term stability. Right, right, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the women who are classified as minimum security and who pass a medical exam, which is very minimum, are, can then be assigned to fire camp. And uh, although the prison itself says that these are voluntary <laughs> positions, uh, you're voluntold. It's not voluntary. <laughs> like you're explicitly voluntold or you're coerced because you need the work and the credit and all that. So how did, how did, how does that actually happen? 
Well, a number of ways. It all if it's fire season and they need bodies, mm -hmm. everyone coming through. That fits the criteria. Minimum minimum security, able uh, body, fire mm -hmm. camp, fire camp, mm -hmm. fire camp. Wow. And then sometimes wow. when it's off season, you know, folks may have a choice. They mm -hmm. may say, Well, you can do this or you can do this. Mm -hmm. But then there's always that reassignment. They can just pull you out right. of a job, out of an education program, and put you in fire camp. So if you are <laughs> safe enough to risk your own life um, to go save, you know, the environment, to go save property, to go save capitalism. But you you have to be low security risk in order to do that. Absolutely. So it's okay for you to put your life on the line mm -hmm. <laughs> right. for you know, a dollar an hour, but um, you also have to, you know, not be a flight risk per se, because the fire camps are located, all the conservation camps are located within the counties themselves. Right. So I'm struck by the fact that you have to be minimum security to go out and fight fires, but you can be maximum security so to speak and train other people to do it um which is just such a hypocritical and contradictory like there's no internal reasoning because if you were so dangerous perhaps you shouldn't be training other people about how to go out into the world either you know presumably so it's just this kind of um morose bizarre perverse attempt to organize people inside with, um, you know, and and to really um, create hierarchies, right? I mean, I don't know if that, if that played out. Well, definitely um, the prison system creates hierarchies in all of their positions. Mm -hmm. You know, there's clerks and leads and, you know, it just goes all the way down, even with the pay, you know, non-pay is the bottom and then a dollar an hour is is the top. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's how the prison system operates by categorizing people, separating people, creating right. hierarchies, dividing folks, separation, um, incapacitation, <laughs> you know, all of those things that, mm -hmm. that we know the prison system is. And you know, if if fire season is is one of those moments within the the span of the the prison life where folks know you know they can get they can get work mm -hmm. they can go out they can get to the community so their kids can visit them their time can be shortened you know all of these things drive folks to want to be part of the fire camp you know the one of the reasons why i wanted to be a trainer was because get this <laughs> i can make 56 dollars a month mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. right. I was physically fit. I ran a number of um, exercise programs through the recreation department. And one of the highest paying jobs in the prison is, of course, prison industry, mm -hmm. which is sweatshop mm -hmm. <laughs> and fire camp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so it's a desire created by precarity right Cre created mm -hmm. by like the po poverty of being inside 
um, the deprivation of being outside, the deprivation of long sentences and seeing family and all that. And, you know, so they can say it's voluntary and it may technically not be forced, but it certainly is every, like everything else coerced. And I wonder, you know, when you talk about this, you're kind of matter of fact. And I wonder about where did it, how did you experience that more affectively? Like, were you um, in community with other women and mostly thinking about making sure that you train them in a way where they were safe? Or did you feel angry? Did you feel um, extracted? I'm just wondering, um, you know, what the experience was like on a more interior level. Yeah, I mean, you you feel all of those things because you're working with people, human beings, mm -hmm. and women who have come from some of the most traumatic situations, um, yeah. you know, pre-incarceration. And so you get to know each other. So you do build community and intimacy. And when you're sitting down having your lunch break or you're walking around, people are talking mm -hmm. and they're sharing some of their deepest secrets mm -hmm. and greatest harms. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're listening to these, these broken women that you're building up mm -hmm. to be stronger, mm -hmm. to be resilient, mm -hmm. to be firefighters. And yeah. so it's, it's incredible to to be in that position to wipe a tear from someone's face and then also support them with lifting 50 pounds over their head. You know, and, and to hear them talk about their children and how they need to get back to them and the things they want to do different. And it's, it's all of that that happens in the relationship of training. Whenever you're what training- What they have to do to get back to them. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the brokenness, the, yeah. the suffocation, the lifting, the arduous labor, the, yeah. the risk, you know, it's, it's vile. And it has to be done quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an urgency to it because right. the demand of the state on the body, we mm -hmm. need bodies, we need bodies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of the women going through the program will keep their pain a secret. You know, will will keep their physical injuries a secret because they want to continue on the journey to get to camp. You know, and as soon as they can get checked off, as soon as they can run that mile in under 15 minutes, do those push-ups, do those sit-ups, squat thrusts burpees, lift those weights, then they're off to the training. Mm -hmm. And then they're off to camp two weeks after that. And so it's, it's this kind of momentum that drives folks to endure continued suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, the body is broken twice, yeah. you know, right. in order to get these, these women prepared to go out and fight mm -hmm. fires on the side of a mountain and when they get there oftentimes they're not prepared for fire you know fire is it consumes you know 100 year old trees 
it's terrifying. It's, it's, it's terrifying. The heat, the soot, the smoke, it's terrifying. And so women come back from those experiences, sometimes even more traumatized than when they went out in the first place. And some of them love it, but most of them don't. Mm -hmm. They have no idea what they're prepared for. They sit in the classroom and watch some videos of firefighters. Right. It's, but when you get there and you feel that burn on your skin, it's a whole different feeling. And you didn't go through years of training to do it, right? And so <laughs> your kind of position is like this triage training, like an ER kind of situation for environmental catastrophe that is man-made, that is the result of capitalism, that is gendered. It's about, you know, being able to build homes in particular areas that are not, you know, fit for um commercial and residential development it is about a kind of you know capitalism's ever um marching need for circulation and expansion and intrusion into um unenclosed commons areas right it's about enclosure and so um you have the precariousness of women who have been dispossessed Mm. to racial capitalism and gendered racial capitalism, then incurring and being on the front lines of saving the kind of most unscrupulous forms of that capitalism, which is not to say that anyone, you know, we hope that no one is injured in wildfires, right? Um, least of all the people who have been forced and coerced to fight them. You know, but the fact of the matter is that so much of the deforestation and that fire is about people wanting to build where, you know, there is it, where it's wooded, where it is, um, you know, natural lands. And so it's just such a, um, a layered system of extraction and violence, you know, extreme violence. Mm -hmm. And so for you to talk about the trauma of it, um, is and really exploitation. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's when, when, when you finish your sentence and, and you're released, even with that kind of experience, mm -hmm. employment is yeah. often, you know, not an option for, for you with Cal Fire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, even in California, you know, we, we try to be progressive with legislation, but you know, it's it's still a problem for folks to get employment mm -hmm. when they leave the fire camp system. Mm -hmm. A couple of years back, a bill was passed, AB 2147, that is supposed to expedite the expungement process mm -hmm. so that folks with the experience fighting fires mm -hmm. can actually get an EMT license because that's the holdup. Right. You know, not that you're not trained and you're not able to do the work. Mm -hmm. As a felon, you're not able to get an EMT license. Right. But this reminds me of other organizing work that you've done, and this isn't directly related to fire, but definitely related to questions that, you know, as much as many of us say we're in carceral studies and do abolitionist work and all of this stuff, it's like, 
the detailed forms of forced precarity are mm -hmm. like never ending. And so I'm reminded in this conversation of your work around social security inside, which I would love to, you know, um, hear about and how you came to that organizing and that policy work, because this is something that, you know, many of us, when we think about, you know, in American studies, when we're thinking about racial capitalism and the wealth and welfare and neoliberalism, we're not thinking about, hmm, social security inside. No, no one is thinking about the person that has been disappeared. Yeah. Beside, exactly. but behind these prison walls and what our lives are going to be like when we come home. Mm -hmm. Now, when I came home after 23 years and I started working again and I set up my Social Security account and all of that, when I pulled my record up, it just blew my mind. That I had only worked, you know, five years and then I had 23 years of non-work. 23 zeros <laughs> where I earned nothing. Because none of your work inside prison counts toward um, social security retirement. No, it does, it does not. So when we're incarcerated for long periods of time, we come home, we have no social security built mm -hmm. and no retirement, although we are employees of the state. Right. Working the whole time. Most, most <laughs> oh, you must work because. The Title 15, the California Code of Regulations says that every able-bodied incarcerated person must work. You must work. It is not optional. You've been listening to a conversation between activist scholars Sarah Haley and Romarilyn Rolston about the firefighting labour of people imprisoned in California's women's prisons. We pick up the conversation next week where we consider women's carceral labour without the provision of social security and the desperate need, in fact, to fight for a social security safety net for people exiting prison. Don't miss next week's show. But that's all we've got time for on today's program. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kunjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook and contact us there. Thanks for tuning into the program. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. <laughs>